0: I'm going to introduce now to the stage um, a couple of people. Um, The first is Dr. Katie Seidel, who's a consultant neurologist at Queen's Square in London. And the second is Peter Thomas, who is um, quite tricky to describe. But he's many things, and he's our creative director. So, Katie and Peter.
1: Hello.
2: Hello.
1: Were you both singing? Hello, we were.
2: We were, and dancing.
0: Katie's a flamenco dancer and has promised to um, dance next year
1: at Medicine Unboxed. Um, The camera? Yeah. Um, So you may have seen me um, roaming around for the last day or so taking pictures, and now that obviously can't be true at this very minute. And so in the way that when you should never sit in the front row of a magic show... I'm going to ask someone to take pictures for the next 20 minutes. So who would like to grab my camera and take pictures? If nobody volunteers, I'm going to pick someone. A photographer? Right, there we are. Hello, my name's Peter. You are? I'm John. Hello, John. Would you like to grab that? Don't drop it. It's very expensive. (laughs) All you need to do is push the button and hope for the best. And there are only going to be several thousand people that see these pictures, so you should be fine. Don't worry.
0: Um, The photographs, the camera, um, forms the kind of hub of an interesting collaboration between uh, you two. I wondered if you could tell me about it a bit and what the idea inception behind that was.
1: Um, So one of my other jobs, you said tricky to describe, one of my other jobs is I run a charitable foundation. Um, And a while ago we decided to try and pursue a different way of getting behind causes and um, we said that giving away money to causes is a great thing. What we'd really like to do is to get people to engage personally in a cause and so I put my hand up and said I'll do this first and I used to uh, be some kind of photographer not like Christian. Christian of course who won the prize yesterday is an actual photographer, I'm merely an amateur. Um, What I decided to do was um, to try and use that little bit of skill I have to try and raise awareness of multi-neuron disease, and we'd met Katie through um, a connection with someone who had the disease and unfortunately died, and so I approached Katie, and we'd been raising money for Katie previously, and so I approached Katie and said, what I'd really like to do is to try and raise awareness of the disease by taking pictures of um, some of her patients, Um, and so Katie very kindly agreed to um, talk to her patients and let me go around and take pictures of them, and so what we ended up with after that process, which we'll talk about, is this book, which is outside, and we'll talk a bit of, about that more. But the idea really was to try and, for the foundation that I run, to demonstrate to those people that um, there are many ways to try and support good causes that involve a great deal of personal investment, and so that's where the project came from.
0: Katie, you, is your um, role at Queen's Square is it primarily for patients with motor neuron disease or wider neurology?
2: So I work in two hospitals, but Queen's Square, my work is purely with motor neuron disease. Right.
0: And the other hospital.
2: So I also work at Whittington, where I do right. general neurology. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, but Queen Square, all my patients have motor neuron disease.
0: And so, how many new patients a year with motor neuron disease would you see?
2: So um, I see about two or three new patients a week. Right. A week. Um, and in the UK, at any one time, there are about five thousand patients with motor neuron disease. Mm-hmm. And then I have about. Uh, eight to ten follow-ups as well. So each week I see about uh, ten or eleven patients with motor neuron disease, Mm. three of whom I'm breaking the diagnosis to.
0: Mm. At various points in that Mm. trajectory, which could be wide, presumably.
2: Yes, so the average life expectancy of motor neuron disease is three years, um, but the diagnostic process often takes quite a long time. By the time they come to me, Mm. often with the diagnosis, but they want confirmation... They often only have 14 months left to live, so there's a long delay, and that's a problem in itself. But um, actually, motor neuron disease is an umbrella term, and there are different forms of it. Mm. So some patients do have a much slower course, and, that's, uh, and, and I get to know them for many years. Mm. And one of my roles, a small part of the role, is actually trying to work out which form they have mm. to help prognosticate for them.
0: And you've got a research role as well, is that right? Which I might yeah. Yes, yeah. come on to. But it's inter- as an oncologist, an interesting thing, and I don't know if this is necessarily true, um, would w- be interesting your views as a neurologist, but very often it's the case that if we um, attach a label of cancer, make a diagnosis of cancer, um, there's a particular kind of view of what that will mean. And there's a lot of noise around the correlation between... Um, cancer and mortality uh, in fact in that Lancet piece that Julian talked about I remember distinctly as a junior doctor going, being on ITU, being on call and saying to, um, and I got my registrar post as an oncologist and the, registr- the ITU registrar I was working with, extraordinary uh, at the time said um, well that's fine at least you can't stuff up now because all your patients are dying anyway which is really, um, a really profound thing that struck me <laughs> at the time uh, and stays with me actually um, a lot. And I just wondered, in, in your work, giving that diagnosis, is that something, is, it, is there a recognition of motor neurone disease and what its implications are as against something like a cancer diagnosis?
2: Yes, I think there is both in the medical profession and amongst the patients. Mm. And I think one of the reasons there's such a long delay in patients finally being given the label is actually my colleagues themselves are reluctant to give the label because Mm. it is considered an absolute death sentence. It is. 100% of my patients die in clinic. They all die. So unlike cancer where obviously you can give them some hope. So uh, within uh, my professional colleagues, there is a big implication about the diagnosis. Mm. Um, The patients come to me... Some of them will often, quite a lot of them will already know that the spectre of MND is there, it's been discussed with them and they're, they're hoping that, I'll say it, isn't. Or, mm. actually more frequently, unusually, they just want confirmation. They've spent mm. a year and a half not knowing what's going on, not being able to plan their life. They actually actually, want a diagnosis so they can plan their life. Mm. Um, and, and so paradoxically, you sometimes get this slight relief reaction. Mm. At last, I know what it is.
0: And therapeutically, what actually is available?
2: So I sometimes wonder why my patients keep coming back to clinic, um, because there is only one drug license for the disease, but it only prolongs life by probably three months. It's Mm. quite trivial. Everything else that we're doing is supportive and supporting the symptoms, supporting the family, taking them through the process of dying. Um, but we can do a lot of practical things, so maintaining the mobility, maintaining their ability to speak, mm. whether that's using throat mics or uh, machines, or if they then can't use their hands, using eye tracking systems. Communication is of extreme importance for these patients. Um, using breathing machines when their muscles that help them breathe begin to go and they can no longer breathe, and that makes them feel very unwell. Mm. We're not, um, and then eventually losing the ability to swallow, so giving them a tube so they can uh, not keep choking every time uh, they try and eat. But uh, we're not interested in using these to prolong life for the sake of prolonging life. It is absolutely about trying to preserve quality of life um, by using these means.
0: And is that broadly, do you get the sense that that is understood at the outset, or is that quite... that's? So you're giving, you're giving that diagnosis and I guess pretty rapidly in some way making that apparent.
2: So um, what's interesting is that at the beginning of the diagnosis people often want to have a conversation about what their death will involve. <laughs> They're very uh, keen to know whether it will be painful, uh, whether it will be unpredictable and rapid that they may just wake up one morning in bed and can't be able to move. So there's a lot of misunderstanding that needs to be um, um, corrected but the other thing that we can give them actually is some control over their death Mm -hmm. and actually that's something that's very important for people initially to know that they will have some autonomy the vast majority of these patients end up on breathing machines Mm. and become dependent on them Mm. and when they take them off they'll die within Mm. half an hour Mm. so actually a lot of patients at the end of when they feel ready, they make that decision to take the mask off themselves and they have their family around them, so they're in the place where they want to die, so they're in control. You know, they've stayed alive for their grandchild to be born or, or their child's graduation. They've chosen some point that's meaningful to them. Um, but actually, later on in the relationship, death is not something that they uh, dwell on, actually. it's. Um, it's the living. It's the everyday. I think someone described here the, the banality of living. that, uh, And that's what's of great interest to me. So we used to do advanced directives, uh, trying to get patients to decide beforehand what they wanted. You know, If they could no longer swallow, they wouldn't want a peg. If they could no longer breathe, they wouldn't want a breathing machine. And lots of patients start off saying that. But people's goalposts change, and you never really know how you're going to... Um, uh, change with that as an individual. So it's very difficult to predict how you respond, mm. your goalposts change. And lots of patients who say, you know, uh, if I have to have a peg, that's it, I don't want it, mm. we will get to the stage, actually, I do want a peg because, you know, my daughter's just had a baby or, mm. you know, I'm still enjoying the company of my friends. And so uh, our own goalposts shift. Mm. And, and that's... Um, Difficult because I know that I see that happening again and again and again in Mm. all my patients Mm. But the individual patient in front of me often doesn't know that at that stage. It's a Gnostic issue Mm. So they often have quite strong ideas about uh, what they want, and what they don't want Mm. And I have to sort of gently Keep them on board with the ideas Yes, Mm. that's right and and what the options are because they invariably choose them
0: So Peter going into the you know, we, you know, we won't dwell on all the ethical processes, etc., cetera, et cetera, to get to this project, but finding, yourselves, finding yourself then arriving in um, these persons' houses <clears throat> to take the photographs. And I think in in the sort of spirit of Medicine on Box Confession, it's fair to say <clears throat> you would be conscious of your own mortality and um, worry about it, yeah? Indeed. So going into... Um, those rooms what, what was that first encounter
1: what was that encounter like well I was profoundly having agreed to do this um, rationally I thought at the time I found it profoundly terrifying the first encounter I had a long drive to see the, the first person I saw um, Stephen and was completely beset by terror about what I would encounter. and what I, was the fear? The fear was that I wouldn't know what to say, right. I think, because we hadn't planned an interview. Yeah. I, although I talked to all of the patients for quite a long time, I was spent hours with lots of people, several hours, um, and, in fact, only took pictures often at the very end of the discussion that we had. Um, and I was profoundly terrified by the whole process and, and worried about it, and I realised, of course, at the end that I had no choice but to do this, having committed to it. Um, and the first person I met was Stephen, and met him. And I often met people with their entire families and children, and in this case, grandparents, grandparents. Um, and of course, it was actually the most beautiful encounter. Um, why beautiful, is a sp- so why
0: that word? What's, what do you mean by that? Well,
1: because it was simultaneously all about mortality, because it was the thing that this was about. It was about death, and we talked about death quite openly with many of the, in fact, almost all of the people. But it was. Beautifully mundane in some senses. That they made me lunch, and I had a sausage roll, and I stroked the dog, and I met um, Stephen's grandfather, who was a World War Two tank commander with three of his fingers missing. We talked about that, and we sat outside and talked about the weather, and it was, it much of it was mundane and yeah. beautiful because of it. And then we talked about the disease and its progress. And so how long did you spend? Oh, my microphone. How long did you spend with each, on also average, was hours? I was with Stephen for. Maybe five or six hours potentially right. in a discussion that was recorded by consent.
0: And in, in total, how many
1: photographs, how many individuals did you meet? It took 18, 16 or 18 photographs. Um, and each individual was the same pattern that, in fact, after the first encounter with, with Stephen, yeah. I lost all anxiety about right. that process. And in yeah. fact, the first encounter was the perfect encounter yeah. because it led me to believe that actually I should encounter these people just as individuals. Right. as beings. That's right, and so the, the title of the book, The Me, in Me and M&D, I came to realize that mm. the book's title was really yeah. about seeing beyond the letters and seeing the person, but I realized it became about me oh, right. in the Thank encounter you. with those people.
0: And Katie, how were the patients receptive to this? When you, as a as a, as a rule,
2: so uh, they were very excited to be involved. What's a um, uh, common trait in these patients is that they want to leave a legacy. Right. So, uh, whatever that may be, that they're, they're extraordinarily keen to be involved in research, um, leave their brains and spinal cords after they die becomes very important to them Um, and this book was a fantastic opportunity for these patients also to feel that they were leaving a legacy but also contributing somehow to uh, well in a very real way to um, our research so that becomes a very important driving force again it's not death that that they're interested in, they're interested in trying to live their current life to the full and that changes too so Mm -hmm. You know, somebody who would say they were keen footballer and when they could no longer walk, they weren't interested in. Mm. Their day, the centres around being delighted that they can still pull their trousers up by themselves, and they don't have to have a carer. Mm. And it literally becomes uh, um, not a battle, but actually feeling pleased that they can still achieve these goals, mm. make a difference to their quality of life. But um, and then the other common trait we see is, is wanting to leave a legacy and. And not so concerned about their own death, but how their death will impact on the people they leave behind. Right. That's a very common. Right. And uh, the people encounter. they leave behind, you mean family or Fa- family? Yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. I'm conscious the word "patients" may, the word "patient" may cause um, some ambivalence. I suggest we will pick up on that actually in the session after lunch. Um, the, the issue of the legacy and your role then as a researcher, a clinical researcher, as well as a job in clinician and that um, dual that dual interface with the disease, the very personal and then the utilitarian good, how does that, does that how is that squared?
2: Uh, I don't find it a conflict, I, I find that the two enhance each other, so I'm not just a clinical researcher, I'm my background as well as neurology, is I'm a molecular geneticist, so I'm actually in the lab Working in very abstract ways mm. with this disease, mm. and actually often using the brains of my patients mm. who donated them. So it's
0: similar to see Black last yeah. night, there. Yeah.
2: And uh, I think there's nothing more empowering than um, for your research, sitting in front of patients and caring for patients who are dying of the disease you're researching uh, in the lab. And actually, my students, I will often try to get them, who are non-medical, so don't have an opportunity, I, yeah. I often try to give them the chance to interface with patients. It's very profoundly important, uh, and they often report that to me for their research.
0: So interface with patients generally? Yeah. yeah. So non-clinical yes. individuals? so my
2: PhD students, yeah. I get them to... We have, we've had open days yeah. where our patients get to meet the scientists, yeah. they get tours of the labs, yeah. and our uh, students get to meet the patients. Yeah. And it's a very positive experience for
0: them all. So how do the scientists, the pure scientists, engage with that?
2: Uh, they're very intimidated, yeah. I think, to start off with. Yeah. and um, the, But they all report back, they find it extremely empowering for their research and motivating.
0: Empowering?
2: In that... I think sometimes it's quite common for scientists to be working on a disease and never, ever having seen the disease itself, right. never having seen a patient with the disease, uh, and that's actually the norm. Uh, but for a scientist to actually encounter somebody who's living with the disease, and that's the term we use in motor neuron disease, we don't refer to these patients as dying with motor neuron disease, we say they're living with mm. it. Mm. Uh, that <coughs> they, um, Find it enormously motivating, and uh, it—you see them working later in the lab.
0: (laughs) Well, that's interesting. Yeah. That's really interesting. I'll just stop at that. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, I just wanted. Works every time. Yes. If only it worked for doctors. Um, What I might do is um, just—can we look at some of the photographs? And would you be all right to just maybe talk? through them a bit as they come up, if we drop the lights. If we drop the stage lights and just have the, um, the reel on, please. And, and the stage lights down. Thank you. Um,
1: so this is um, someone called Adolfo, who was, uh, this photograph was taken in the 30 seconds he was able to remove his breathing mask and insisted on doing so to have his photograph taken. There's another photo of Adolfo later wearing his mask. And again, this was in Adolfo's house. Um, and Adolfo, like other patients, was incredibly, people were incredibly accommodating in allowing me to take and use exactly which photograph um, I wanted to use. Um, uh, and all, were, all all the people who were in the photographs were given the opportunity to, um, uh, to vet the photograph that I took and, and use it. Um, this is Adrian. Adrian is someone who was actually still very well um, and remains very well and was, very um, philosophical about the changes he needed to make to his life to be able to accommodate his disease so he could live his life with his wife and children. Um, and I guess what I saw in that photograph, in the way that it's probably not helpful for me to talk about the photographs, rather it's for you to see something in them, is that incredible sense of determination and passion and commitment. This is Bobby, or rather the hands of Bobby who was. By far, my favorite person, I think, in, the, in this project, who died very shortly afterwards, who talked about his hands. Bobby was an exceptional individual, a postman. He'd been a postman for 40 years and had traveled around the world to exceptional places, and now was, of course, unable to do so, and he was in a nursing home in Highbury. And this is Carol. Um, Carol um, couldn't speak at all and as re- was reliant on a, a speaking machine, and I met her with her mother, Faye. Um, in North London, and she was the most delightful and exceptional individual who talked about her life. And There are quotes in the book, of course, from each of these people, Um, and the quote, uh, one of them is that she used to wear diamante boots and they were wicked, and I can see exactly how Carol would wear those diamante boots in the time before she was sick. Um, This is Diana. Diana is a philosophy graduate, and we talked a great deal about Death and belief and mortality. In fact, all of our discussion from the very minute that I walked in to see Diana was about the nature of death. And uh, again, the quote by Diana is that you know she didn't need religious belief to understand her life. And this is Glenn. And Glenn was one of the people who helped Eddie Redmayne out as a model for the Theory of Everything movie. Um, and Glenn was a film and studies lecturer. And so I tried to take an image of him that seemed to me to be in some way cinematic as a a reference to the life that he had before he was ill. Um, And this is Mark and Mark died. um, Very shortly afterwards, that the the, the picture was taken and his partner, um, Hugh, um, got a copy of the book just after he picked Mark's ashes up from the crematorium and he said that the picture gave him comfort in a time that um, Mark was gone. Um, and this is Tess, um, and uh, Tess was diagnosed and lost to speech fairly rapidly, um, And we had an incredibly emotional encounter with Tess and her husband, where we all cried for quite a while, um, and it felt like a thing that we should do. And, but it was an uplifting, an uplifting encounter between all three of us. And there's the second image of Diana. And then finally Ron, and Ron is one of your patients as well, it's he, Katie, and Ron is what could be best described as an activist, incredibly passionate and positive, and said, there are worse things that happen to people than this. And that's Terry, Terry is a former CEO of several public companies, um, and um, seemed to me to, as that photo maybe reflects, I can't really tell, to be extremely determined in the face of the fate that he was going to come to. The second image of Tess. And then Trevor, who's the cover image for the book, former professional footballer, former, I think, steel worker in the Midlands, um, who lives a passionate and engaged life um, and shows an incredible amount of determination and strength. And that's the final image of Adolfo wearing his breathing mask. And Wendy, who has also since died, I believe, um, who was, I find that image actually quite hard to talk about. Wendy was the most incredible individual I thought I met her in a, with a sister in a nursing home in London. And Bobby, Bobby's hands you saw earlier, the postman for 40 years.
0: Thank you. I might open it up to the audience if that's all right. We have the house lights up. Um, We have time for a few questions um, just before lunch, if there are any, or comments, observations. I can't see, I'm afraid. Uh, Is there someone? Yeah. Thank you.
3: Uh, Thanks, Roger. My comments are going to not reflect very well on me, right? Because you've spoken here about how people's goalposts move, how a lot of people assume in that situation they wouldn't want to go to the bitter end, (coughs) they'd want out. And similar experiences, I think, with people around dementia, I've sort of looked a bit into that. And in some ways, this kind of should be comforting to sort of realise that if you found yourself in that position, you would probably cope and find value in life that you wouldn't do. But I don't find it comforting. I almost find it disturbing. And I'm thinking, why is that? And just off the top of my head, I think the explanation I've got is that there's something uncomfortable about admitting that one might be, find a purposeful life among the, as one of the weak, as one of the sick. Do you see what I mean? I, 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 that, I'm sure that reflects very poorly on me. I don't know if that's a common reaction, that people aren't comforted but worried.
0: Julian, can you just, just say that again? So what's the, so the discomfort is. The discomfort is
3: that it should be reassuring to see how people find a purpose and dignity and even happiness in the late stages of these diseases. But I myself somehow don't find that kind of reassuring because the thought that I too might... I, th- I, I think, I'm trying to interpret this, I think that the thought that I too might find myself in that situation yes. is uncomfortable because it's an acknowledgement that I might, as it were, move over to the realm of the weak and the sick and be comfortable there and that's a threat to some kind of pride or ego maybe, I, I don't know.
0: So the fact you, that it may happen that you may become unwell and yet find meaning and life in that feels challenging. Yeah, it's yeah. challenging
3: rather than reassuring, which I think okay. is odd in some ways.
0: Yeah,
2: I, mean, I must say I, I find it reassuring and I think you're echoing what it is that we see in, in our patients, this issue that you cannot know yourself or what you want or what's important to you until you're faced with that difficulty and you're very much uh, vocalising that inability a priori to, I think, put yourself in that uh, position. Maybe it's the fear of having the disease rather than the fear of actually being content with the disease that you're feeling, I'm not sure.
0: Thank you.
4: I think the photographs are beautiful, but when I first saw them, um, the first thing that came to my mind was, where is the photo of the carer and I say that from a former carer of a father with vascular dementia who passed away last year and this possibly answers Julian's question um, because when I started caring for my father in uh, 2008 I basically there was a lot of baggage I had to get rid of which was uh, partly forgiveness and uh, for me to be able to care for him was also acceptance of his condition And knowing and seeing his rapid decline and it's interesting that some of the things that um, sufferers of motor neurone people with dementia also which is loss of speech loss of ability and he too ate um, literally um, I would say a few weeks before he passed away I was discussing with his GP about his swallowing his tubing um, whether we wanted it or didn't want it Um, and In relation to everything that we've talked about, faith, um, dying, um, when you're caring for someone, you are facing your own mortality as well. Um, But the reason I say it would be lovely for your next project to be of carers, because um, it is carers that are then left with um, various emotions, not only just grieving, but as you're caring for that person, did I do the right thing? Mm. Did I do my best? There is some guilt, there is resentment because I had to give up my career and my life to look after my father. Um, so there's lots of things and that's rarely spoken about and um, I would love your next project. Well, we project. had a long session yesterday. Well, what we have, sorry. I don't carer, don't but, um, but
2: it, it is yeah. an enormous issue and actually a very large part of what we do in the clinic is about supporting the carers. Um, We have a nurse specialist and we run uh, clinics actually for the carers themselves. Uh, It's not unusual for me to continue to uh, maintain contact with carers after my patients die. I often invite them to have a coffee if they want to talk through issues that they felt they couldn't um, during the life of that patient. Um, But it is an enormous uh, component of what we do actually uh, to supporting the carer as well. The, of our, I was of the, um, about to say, sorry, our palliative yeah. care. Uh, we uh, work very closely with hospices and palliative care who often actually offer um, treatments just for the carer, whether that's a massage, a little bit of aromatherapy, some time out, looking after the patient so they get some respite. It is a big part of what we do. don't always succeed.
0: Katie, what about the issue in, in a disease such as motor neurone disease where there are life-sustaining interventions which then can be... Withdrawn at a point in time, which is variable, subjective. And the issue of, of the timing of that and the decisions around that and the terrible sense of guilt of, you know, somehow, not only have I somehow caused this, but was it hurried? You know, what was the, what was the agenda there in terms of the withdrawal? How is that engaged with the person and, and the carer?
2: So the vast majority of these patients actually die of respiratory. Uh, infection. So um, at the end of life, there is a timeliness uh, to the death. Mm. The patients who decide that is enough, uh, enough is enough, and they take their mask off, they've usually uh, had a, there is usually not conflict with the carer, they've usually come to that conclusion together. It's very rare uh, to see conflict. Yeah. On yeah, yeah, yeah. What we do see is that after a patient dies, if a patient has wanted to donate their brain, for example, it becomes extremely important for the carer to fulfil that wish. Right. And we have to get the brain within a few hours, and right. that becomes their priority mm. in that moment of death, to get the brain to us. They, they want to fulfil the wishes and, and, and legacy mm. of their loved ones. Mm.
0: Mm. We have time for... The questions yes, mm, please. Yes.
1: So, in fact, the, the, thank you for your comments on the photographs. In fact, I didn't know that these were going to be portraits when I started this project and in fact I offered and asked whether um, carers would like to be photographed and all said no in fact in this case. I took separate photographs for their personal use of their families of in fact have children and carers and relatives. but. Um, none of the people want to be photographed for the book. And I didn't know that when I started. I'd got no idea what this was going to be. So, but you're, you're absolutely right. There's, I think I say in the introduction to the book, there's, you see in the photographs many things, and people will see families and children and carers that exist in the photographs somewhere. But that n- wasn't my intention when I started. Final question from the top. Um,
0: Mine's more of a comment, really, rather than a a question, but I'm just really interested in the parallels that we can make from your approach to the illness, so helping people live with their condition rather than trying to diagnose and change, and how, in many aspects of medicine, we don't have answers for, um, for things, but we don't do very well the helping them live with their condition. Um, outside of high-profile diseases like MND, there often just isn't those resources. And even for more minor complaints, we often, you know, we, we sum it up and say, you know, we've given you the diagnosis, off you trot. And we don't have those that, that approach, that team approach, to help them live, with, live well with their condition. So I'm just interested.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it is an approach, and it doesn't necessarily carry a large financial uh, need. It is a, uh, a philosophy in how you manage your patients Um, so it doesn't cost me anything to (laughs) spend time with my patients and carers and and trying to support them and that's one of the points I was making, it surprises me why they turn up sometimes when I feel there's so little I can do.
0: Thank you all very much, I'm sorry that's all we have time for, a big round of applause please for Casey Seddy and Chris Thomas.